Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Love Grove on Health. My name is Dominic Lukes. I'm the Product Marketing Manager here at Skills for Health and joining me as always is Andrew Lovegrove, Senior Consultant. How's things with you, Andrew? Hi there, Dom. Uh, really good to be with you today and be back in the studio recording the latest podcast. And I think I wouldn't be amiss saying to you today, uh, happy anniversary. Yes, I hope you got the card and flowers. Love them, thank you. <laughs> Mine are in the post. Okay. Uh, yeah, it's pretty much a year since we started this podcast, Malarkey, and we haven't aged at all. <laughs> thank goodness we're an audio-only podcast, is all I can say. <laughs> yeah, but it's been enjoyable, and I think what we're going to do with this podcast is actually look back over that last 12 months and pick out some of the highlights some of the key stories and trends and obviously with rose tinted glasses now perhaps just get your thoughts on what some of those big movers and shaker stories were in the last 12 months so but no it's it's, it's been fantastic I've, I've really enjoyed it and it's it's great to have seen the podcast evolve as well you know with like special guests and Absolutely. And that's likely to happen going forward. Yeah, absolutely. It's been great for you and I just to sort of sit here and chew the fat. And then, in mm. uh, more latterly, we've had um, uh, a variety of, as you say, special guest stars come and join us. And they really added another dimension to the podcast. And, you know, we're here a, a year later still doing these because when we started this, it was very much dipping our toe in the water. We weren't sure how they'd go down, but the, uh, mm. the feedback we've had has been positive and, you know, mm. there's still an appetite to do these. So I think now's a good chance just to take stock, as you say, look back on the last 12 months and maybe also think about what we think is going to happen during the course of 2023 as well. So it's a, it's an appropriate juncture, I think, today, Dom. Looking back, the first episode, January 2022, obviously COVID, the pandemic, the country was still was back in lockdown. The deaths were averaging around 200 a day. Hospital admissions were around 2,500 a day. We we're very much looking at a, a second wave. When you look back at all this and your own sort of reflections on the pandemic in terms of the impact to the healthcare profession, and as the UK as a whole, what do you think were the successes and failures in managing the threat of COVID? Wow, I mean, quite a lot to unpack. Yeah, sorry. Um, I mean, funnily enough, I was just reflecting on it was the second wave, Mm. uh, the tail end of when COVID finally got me. Um, So it was around March last year when I came down with COVID, uh, you know, because I'd been immunised, you know, I was a bit off my legs for a week, but, you know, made a, made a, a, you know, a recovery and, you know, thankfully no long lasting health problems. I think thinking, you know, obviously more broadly than just, just me, I think clearly the vaccinations have been a, you know, big success. The fact that whilst it, COVID is, you know, has not gone away. We haven't stopped talking about COVID. Almost feels an omnipresent threat. We're not as fearful of it as perhaps certainly we were two years ago. And I think that's largely down to the impact of 
the immunizations, um, the vaccine program, the, the success, uh, successful rollout of that. Last autumn, we started a, a campaign for the booster jabs for those people who were identified as needing a booster. Uptake of that has been good. And so I think that's been a, you know, to our credit and to our healthcare workforce, you know, that's been a, you know, a, a huge success, you know, everybody working together, pulling together, you know, to make that a, a real, a real success. I think certainly some of the challenges that that leaves is obviously there's the, the, the whole, as a result of COVID, you know, the, 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 the things that we haven't done in the last year and beyond that and the impact that's having and you know we're having a bad winter flu this year I can't help but wonder uh, and you know disclaimer here you know I am not uh, an immunologist or a virologist but is one of the legacies of Covid that our immune systems are not as robust as they were because of the lockdowns we've had and the fact that perhaps we don't mix in ways that we used to and that means when things like flu happen it's affecting more people and it's affecting them more adversely than uh, perhaps they might have done and is that you know a contributing factor to some of the challenges that we are facing right here today as we record this podcast so i don't know if that fully answers your question on, but those are just some highlights yeah it, it, it does yeah obviously we do a little bit of research but behind these podcasts it's not totally on this by the seat of our pants but do you think looking back as well that the lockdowns do you think they were successfully managed and also you know remembering about the when covid first came out you know sort of washing your hands but then that sort of narrative moved about you know use of masks and social distancing do you think that as a policy worked do you think that landed well with the population interesting you were saying there about the research and not making it up by the seat of our pants i think some of the challenges were that some of that some of those policies were not made in the best possible way and therefore the way those messages landed you know i, I remember a huge debate even within my own family about you know to mask or not to mask is that really effective or is that just about making us feel safer or you know or, or, or less worried and my argument at the time was something that makes you feel better is better than you know that's that could be a good enough reason to to do something particularly in, in, a, in a time of a crisis I think we're much more aware of our own sense of space now and I, I was sort of joking semi half joking with a, a friend that you know if you want to guarantee you know a quiet spot on a train just start coughing you know washing your hands now has become a much more you know much more commonplace and you know the signs that say you know you know wash your hands you know there's still plenty of places out in the public areas that still have the dispensers with 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 hand gel um so i think you know we're, we're a little bit more aware of sort of you know good practice so I was just thinking about my 11 year old nephew uh, every time he sneezes now um, if he if he can't put his hand on a tissue he sneezes into his elbow and that's because somebody at school has 
told him and his his friends that's what they need to do mm. and you know that is a, being done as a as a as a way of you know minimizing if you have got nasty bugs mm. you know a way of minimizing you know spreading them around to other people mm. so i think there are things that you know we 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 have changed you know as, as a result of covid you know and those are some of the positive things mm. but then i'm sure you know there's there's there's, there's, there's slightly more pernicious more negative things that people, you know, our behaviours uh, have, have altered uh, as well as a result uh, of the pandemic. So it's interesting. I, I, I remember this time last year, um, I heard a podcast where somebody said, you know, 2022 will be the year when COVID sort of, you know, moves to the next phase. You know, that whole sense of, you know, it's not a pandemic, it's, it's going to be more of an you know, it's endemic mm. now. And I, and I think... We are on that journey, mm. but you know, I think obviously what happened in China towards the end of last year just shows you that COVID absolutely hasn't gone away. Mm. Um, so I think it will still occupy the airwaves, um, but I think it's going to be you know toned down a bit from twelve months ago. Yeah, I totally agree with that. It's it's a lot harder twelve months on to find news stories about COVID now, isn't it? It's certainly it feels like generally the population across the world, you know, those scenes you mentioned about in China and, you know, the some very brave people to have to rise up against that regime. But I think people actually do want their freedoms back and they're perhaps beginning to live with COVID as a threat. And like you said, those measures yes. in terms of mass spreading, isolation, you know, people are a bit more aware about their own personal health and the risk to others. Absolutely. But I think as one event moves towards the middle pages of the newspaper, clearly other pressures, you know, are occupying the, the, the front pages. And some of those, you know, are as a, don't want to say a consequence of COVID, but I think COVID has been a contributing factor to them, not least, you know, people's inability to access you know, services over the last couple of years. People have been sitting on problems which, you know, now require attention. And, you know, the, the general effects the last couple of years have had on health and well-being uh, as well. So, you know, whilst COVID in its purest sense feels as though it's sort of, you know, like I say, moving towards the middle of the newspaper, as a result of that, you know, other things are, are are now now concerning us. I mean, I think some of those things would have been there regardless of COVID, but COVID's definitely been a another layer of complexity to uh, you know to that particular uh, situation or situations. Yeah, that's a perfect segue actually to my sort of next question to you. So, going back, the next couple of episodes that we recorded together. There was the focus on sort of workforce supply, some of the underlying workforce sort of issues, particularly in primary care. As 2022 has passed now, what do you see as the perhaps the opportunities and threats facing the profession in 2023 and beyond? Well, it's almost as if I had a crystal ball back in yeah. the first part of 2022 saying, you know, say, look, you know, there are real pinch points within primary care and primary care, um, you know, is that, you know, sort of window into, you know, the health service and people's experience 
of healthcare, and you know we 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 are experiencing you know that perfect storm of increased demand, more complex demand, demand that requires more input from members of the of the primary care team, coupled with you know record numbers of people leaving the professions and leaving you know working in that space so you've got you know more and more bread with you know less and less butter which is then you know led towards the end of 2022 you know you know i reflect on my own primary care provision you know a couple of weeks before christmas basically getting a text message from them to say, you know, unless, you know, it's, an, you know, a genuine, you know, urgent problem, you know, please don't attempt to contact us until, you know, the new year um, because a mixture of staff sickness due to, you know, the sort of spike in flu and bugs that we had, at, you know, and are still experiencing, uh, but which started towards the end of the year, we are close to breaking point and we are having to ration provision to the most the most in in need and i understand why that's happened but you know just dealing with the urgent means that some of those important things don't get picked up and if they're not picked up early and timely then they can become urgent problems so i i think primary care is going to be is still going to be a challenge this year because a lot of the problems uh, can't be solved with with quick fixes there are things we can be doing in the here and now and i think one of the reasons why we developed the career and capability framework for primary care general practice nursing part of that was to show that you know any nurse can have a you know at whatever level of practice they are at or healthcare assistant nursing associates they can have a rich re- rewarding career in primary care yeah. and you know what there is a role for you there mm. it's not going to be easy but i think one of the things i love about primary care is you build relationships with people because you know you have the, the potential of seeing people over and over again and people you get to know your population you get to know your patient group i always found that highly rewarding um when i was in clinical practice some of my friends colleagues you know they that's that's not that's not for them that doesn't make them any better or worse than me but you know for me that was always a, a you know a huge you know attractor mm-hmm. to working in that sort of uh, uh, arena so that's why we developed a workforce development solution to help but a framework in of itself mm. you know will not you know bring about change and i think for example the work we did in southeast london and one of my you know all my podcasts last year i enjoyed but i especially enjoyed the one we did with sam heppelwhite from southeast london mm. because then we were going to hear about a some of the challenges firsthand but b some of the solutions mm. that they were embarking upon and you know for example thinking about new roles ways of working that's great i'm I'm a big advocate in thinking about different ways of working but it's about making it real it's about making it 
live. It's about making it meaningful. And some of that broader change management, organisational development, if you want to put a label on it, mm. is absolutely fundamental to bringing about some of those changes. Mm. And we need to bring about some of those changes, Dom, mm. to make our primary care services sustainable. Because I think we're now seeing you know, some of the, the real threat of instability within primary care. And if we don't do something about it, you know, doing nothing is not a risk-free option. No. Um, and, you know, we really need to do something, you know, quite fundamental with our with our primary care, um, the way we, we think about our workforce, how we plan for that workforce and how we develop that workforce. That was really interesting. It was really interesting to hear about your own GP sending those messages out before Christmas. I've, I've not experienced that in Worcestershire where I live, but tales of our own is trying to get appointments for ourselves. Very difficult. We've got two young children. We do tend to get callbacks, but it's a lot more sort of video yes. appointments now. I can't remember the last time we actually went into the GP surgery. It may even be before COVID. It feels like people's habits and trust and confidence in the whole primary care setting is, is being eroded slightly I, it feels like now it's more self-management and perhaps actually gp is the last recall because you just know it's very difficult to get appointments now i could contradict myself about three times over on this one so on the one hand so i have a long-term condition with i having asthma and for years and I've always bemoaned the fact that once a year I had to go and have what I saw was a pretty pointless appointment with somebody who would just input some data. And, you know, I, many occasions I used to say to the practitioners, well, I hope you got something out of that because I certainly didn't. But equally to this year, I was I received an online form which I accessed through a text message I received filled some information in and then about three weeks later got a text message saying from your answers your condition appears to be stable we're happy not to see you this year mm. and you know I was, and then after I thought well well great because you know a lot of my appointments over the year I, I, I feel have not added a lot of value mm. but then I did find myself thinking well so when I go and see somebody they're seeing me probably for the first time so mm. there's no baseline of what normal is i know what normal is like but they don't know what normal is like so i kind of was left left a bit contradicted okay like i said there was an inherent contradiction in my thought processes mm. and then just hearing what you say dom about for a long long time we've seen the gp and primary care as very much the gatekeeper you know that concept of a family doctor they are there as, you know, almost, you know, with, with extended arms, mm. you know, as, as a member of the family. Mm. You know, I remember, you know, mum telling me when, when I was born, you know, a week later, the doctor came and visited my mum mm. just to say congratulations and was she all right? Wasn't really there mm. to perform anything in terms of a clinical intervention, mm. but almost I suppose, little more than good manners, perhaps. Now, that model with the numbers of GPs versus the number of patients they have, mm. the vast majority of the country, that just would not, no. be, that wouldn't work. That just would not be sustainable. 
So I do wonder if we are moving to a an approach where the GP, rather than sort of like being that first port of call, is going to be very much you go through several steps yeah. before you access the GP. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. I got a text message a couple of weeks ago, actually, and it was about doing your own blood pressure yes. test at home. And I think you're absolutely right. I think technology is probably going to play a part, actually, where a lot of this is kind of self-assessment based. And then perhaps there'll be flags and triggers where, because sometimes, you know, getting a GP appointment, you've actually come out of it. And you, like you said, you've probably wasted your time more more relevantly their time yes you know and this idea that you know we are we are the most responsible person for our own health mm. and well-being mm. and actually doing the things that we can do we should do and self-care is, is important and you know I, I read something many years ago that talked about the need to de-paternalize health care that you know that we very much you know certainly people of my parents' gen- generation, you know, doctor knows best and, you know, don't question what they say and, you know, we're these sort of passive recipients of healthcare and actually we need to have a more active relationship. Mm. But part of that is taking more responsibility for ourselves and so, mm. yeah, you know, doing things like, you, you know, your own blood pressure at home, you know, obviously mm. making sure that you've got the right size cuff and the machines calibrated, but you know there are other people within, you know, the primary care team who can support that. I'm a big pharmacy fan. I interestingly, um, over the last few years, I've developed you know a good rapport with one of my local pharmacists, and you know they're a, they're a wealth of, uh, of of information and support, mm. and you know really are somebody I've gone to in the first instance. Mm. Now, they will, if it's something that they can't sort of deal with, they'll be very comfortable and clear that, you know, they need to refer, you know, refer you on or signpost you to somebody else. But, you know, I, I think I think historically we've seen pharmacists as the people who dispense mm. the drugs. Mm. And I, I think, that, I mean, they've always been so much more than that. But yeah. I think they're, they're 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 absolutely becoming, you know, just as you know, crucial members of of of, of the primary healthcare team, and you know the way the way we make it work is that we join the various dots together, uh, and mm. this is where I I put some store and some faith in the primary care networks that we talked about on a previous podcast that actually we think about you know, how we coordinate, how we design, deploy services and our workforce underneath that. Because I remember last year, you know, an infamous train journey where I was sat next to uh, two people who were GP registrars and they were saying, well, our practice now employs a pharmacist themselves and but I'm not really sure what they do. And I listened for a while and I couldn't help but join in the conversation. And I said, what you're describing to me is kind of like, you know, bear trap number one with, you know, role redesign and new ways of working because Mm. you've brought this person in, you've identified a need, you've accessed the R, the additional role reimbursement scheme, the R's money Mm. to bring them in, but you haven't really thought about how they integrate into the wider offer and how, 
you know, where one ends and the other practitioners begin and vice versa. Mm. So, you know, I think there is the scope out there to broaden the, you know, the, the primary care team. Mm. And I think that's not to, you know, to dilute the team because we're, we still need our GPs, absolutely. Mm. But I don't think we can see, you know, just having more GPs is, is you know, is not, is not the answer. They're part, it's part of the solution. It's a fundamental part of the solution. But I think we have to think more broadly than just having more GPs because that in of itself will not bring about some of the changes that we need to bring as a result of the long-term trends as an aging population, more complex demands, and as, you know, we develop more innovation in terms of what health can do, you know, we have to think about how we deliver those things in a way perhaps that we haven't done in the past. But I remember 30 years ago when practice nurses were brand new almost, 33 years ago, I think it was, my practice had its first, you know, and people are like, so what does the nurse do? Because this is the general practice surgery. This is where the doctors are. What's a nurse doing here? I think Mm. primary care would fall flat on its face if we took out all the practice nurses and nurse practitioners and uh, advanced practitioners, you know, and, and we probably need to think about, you know, in 30 years' time, We'll be talking about primary care looking uh, very differently. It would be nice to think we could do it without a crisis, but crisis is the source of maybe some of the best innovation. Mm. I, j- just to summarise all that as well, my own dealings with pharmacies lately, one of our little ones has got a bit of a skin condition, absolutely fantastic service, offers so much great advice, lots of different creams and anointments and that sort of stuff. And um, yeah. Next question is a bit of a long-winded one, so stay with me. So a lot of our podcasts, we did a lot of sort of newsy items, didn't we? And when you look back, there was a sort of golden thread, you know, and, you know, these still stand true as we're recording today. You know, record waiting times for ambulances, record waiting time for cancer treatments and diagnostics, record numbers of patients not being discharged from hospital when fit to do so, staffing crisis, record numbers leaving the profession add to the mix the cost of living crisis you know, the strike action that's happening the levels of public confidence slash satisf- satisfaction it's obviously been quite a difficult year for anyone working in or associated to the sector where do you see the rays of lights coming from actually <laughs> i was just thinking as you were talking there if, if you would if you were describing you know this as, as a series of windows on your computer Mm. thing you probably do is turn it off and turn it back on again because um you know that's quite a quagmire of of of, of stuff there if i can pick on about well, pick on uh probably the wrong word if, if, if we take the ambulance mm. challenge at the moment I, I i think that's probably the one that concerns me the most mm. because i think We've always seen 999 as the veritable lifeline. Yeah. You know, when we are, you know, our lives are at risk through various scenarios. Yeah. That that is kind of like the emergency cord that, 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 you know, that we collectively can pull on and know that somebody, you know, I might have to wait, you know, a week to see the GP. I might have to, you know, wait, you know, 16 weeks to get 
my referral sorted for you know for a hospital appointment but when something truly urgent happens mm. that you know i will when i truly need it then i will get that response but then when you unpick some of the the issues around response times the the root cause of it you know lies you know almost at, you know if you think about hospitals as a you know machine mm. um it's at the other end of the machine where the problems lie because if ambulances can't i hate using the word unload it makes it sound like my weekly shopping but ambulances can't transfer care to uh people in a and e because a and e is clogged up because a and e can't admit to the wards and the wards can't discharge because they can't provide the provision safe provision for people then it kind of you know, eventually, you know, when the, the drain is blocked, ultimately the water won't will sit in the sink because it can't go anywhere. And I think that's that's what, where we're at. Yeah, there's got to be some short term action. So I know as we're recording, you know, in the last few days, the government have talked about you know kind of sort of block purchase of you know beds in you know residential care that they will buy them to enable hospitals to you know, discharge, but that's, it's not sustainable because what will happen is those beds will fill up. They won't be able to discharge from those beds and the hospitals won't be able to discharge from their beds into the the residential nursing home beds and we'll just have a, so there's got to be a, you know, that is a good immediate solution, but there's got to be a solution that follows Mm. quite quickly. I also wonder and I, again I, i'm not saying i necessarily agree or i'm advocating for this but are we going to have to think about what dialing 999 actually means mm-hmm. that you know yes if someone's having a cardiac arrest somebody's having a stroke yes somebody's you know fallen off a ladder i'm, I'm drawing on my years of watching casualty here Dom, or you know there is there is a um you know a, a road traffic yeah. accident but are there things that the ambulance service themselves are responding to that they are not the best placed people to do that and that you know actually looking at what service offer the ambulance service provides i know i have colleagues in who work in the police mm. and they respond to things that really is you know is it, is, is, it, is it truly, truly a policing matter? And, you know, sometimes it is, but other times, well, it's because there's nobody else there. Mm. And, you know, the those blue light services become the provider of last resort. Mm. And are we going to have to have some tough conversations where, yeah, you know, I'm very sorry, but we will not be dispatching an ambulance mm. to that particular event I, I'm not. I'm not saying that's an easy. Uh, it's very easy. It's easy to say here and talk about it here, but are we going to have to think about what nine 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 really is? Mm. And there will be things that we we will have to say no to because we have got to prioritise those truly life threatening emergencies. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I I almost feel my own uncomfortableness just talking, talking about, about yeah. it, but. Is it something, is it one of, you know, I talk about solutions being a variety of ingredients on the table. Is that something that we're going to have to think and talk about? Mm. I I agree with you about the ambulance situation at the moment, because 
because like you said, they're kind of unique, aren't they? They're the sort of partner for all our different emergency services, whether fire and rescue, police, you know, health. And like you said, you know, I, before we started this podcast, I was just looking on sort of Sky News and they were just saying about the ambulance response times worst on record. Some people waiting nearly 90 minutes for response to heart attacks and strokes. So even those life-threatening emergency um, situations are just not getting the response times. You know, I think the government's sort of 18 minutes, isn't it, the target time? And it's you just don't know where how the situation yeah. could be. Obviously, it's this time of year, and you know, you already touched on about the you know the flu pandemic that we're kind of having. You know, COVID's obviously had an impact as well. So perhaps things might get lighter in the summer, but it's it's scary at the moment, isn't it? It is, and I know, I know they're completely separate. But you know, in terms of the ambulance service, its budgets, mm. you know, are they going to have to think about? Well, you know, I'm going to. I'm thinking and talking at the same thing here, which is always mm. a dangerous game. But patient transport services, we spend a lot of money on patient transport services. Is that something we can sustain? And that money, you know, for example, needs to be spent on more paramedics, more blue light services mm. to deal with demand. But, you know, as I say that, if you don't have patient transport services, very often you can't discharge people from hospital because, mm. you know, there's no other way of getting people from a to be but does it have to be an ambulance so you know there's mm. there's i i think we just have to i i i do think we are reaching a point and i'm certainly not a person who advocates for doing away with the nhs or the concept of universal health care but i think do we just have to think about what our offer is how we provide it because i think we try and sustain certain models of, of, of thinking model and models of, of doing that perhaps we, we can't sustain that that you know for the you know the mid 21st century just aren't going to work anymore they're, they're, they're complex Dom and so I think this year you know for, for a long time people in workforce development and people who worked in service development have said we've talked you know I was talking about an aging population back in 2006 where, you know, unless you were a nerd like me, didn't really make the headlines at all. And I, I sometimes feel now that we're, we're, we're not reaping what we haven't sowed. Mm. We're going to get to crisis point. And I think these sort of crises will continue. It's, it's like that game of whack-a-mole. Um, we might do just enough to get through this winter. You know, and everyone crosses their fingers and hopes for the best. But, you know, we'll be talking about, you know, winter 23, 24 in August this year. Mm. You can't live, you know, your life, you know, in urgent mode, you know, because that's when you know, people burn out. People, you know, can't sustain it, hence why people leave. Mm. So there's, there's there's some big macro, you know, we, we, you know the, we need policy. We need to have frank, honest conversations we need to think about what 21st century healthcare looks like. We need to think about money. Mm. You know, we need to think about, you know, as a as a nation, are we spending the, 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 the right amount of money on health and social mm. care? And what does that mean to us as as, as taxpayers? Mm. And, and, and I think you can only kick the can down the road so many times 
and I've been aware aware of the wall at the end of the road for many years. But I think as we without without some changes, we're all now seeing that wall, mm. and you know things are not sustainable, and you know that's why things are bubbling. You know we've had, you know I, I never thought I would see the day where you know my my nurse colleagues would be out on on the picket line mm. but you know you you might say well how naive are you andrew but you know it has happened now you know the the, the, the you know in, 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 one could argue the hardest time to do anything is the first time you do it it becomes that little bit easier and well, maybe easy is not the right word but it becomes you know more commonplace to do it and i've got some very close friends who are still practicing clinicians and highly dedicated never came into nursing to earn mega bucks that wasn't their motivator but you know there's some long-term challenges around remuneration but i think it's just the level the complexity the sheer demand where they're just saying something's got to give we can't sustain this so yeah yes sorry there dom a bit of a bit of a bit of a, a bit of a ramble no, that was good so, Andrew, just to sort of round up this special anniversary podcast, you know, we've looked back at sort of what's happening in the last 12 months, what's happening now, bit of a crystal ball question, but how do you see 2023 panning out in terms of the health sector workforce challenges that you've kind of spoken about already and also about the sort of patient experience as well? What, how, how do you see the next 12 months evolving? I think... The next 12 months are probably going to be fairly fundamental, pivotal. I think, you know, regardless of your big P politics, we need to have some sense of resolution around employee relations. Our workforce are our biggest asset to health and healthcare. And there are issues grievances that need to be listened to and resolved you know i'm not picking a side i'm not making a political point but we need a resolution you know as as a patient as a you know a, as a member of the population we need a resolution and we need to find a middle ground where both sides can you know be comfortable with yeah and um, i think if we don't then i think Ultimately, things are going to get worse for the for the health sector uh, as a whole, um, because I think a workforce that's you know so aggrieved, you know, even if it's not people necessarily you know out on strike, you know, I think re- you know retention levels are just going to plummet, and people will vote w- with their feet. So, I, I would I really would hope that we can resolve that. I think we then. You know, need some stability. I'd like to see a health sector, uh, health secretary, who sees out the year. And I think we need to think about policy. I think we need to think about some honest conversation, drawing down with members of the workforce. You know, the, the professional bodies, patient population input as well about how we want healthcare to look moving forward i hope that the principles of universality and care free at the point of delivery are almost taken as givens 
um, but we we think about what care for the remainder of this decade looks like. I would really like somebody to grasp the social care nettle because mm. I think that is at the root of a mm. lot of the things we we you know with the, the health sector. You know, health and care are just they're even more than two sides of the same coin. Mm. And I think I would hope that we finally can have some honest conversations about that. Mm. But I I live in hope, Dom. It was great to get your thoughts on, you know, like I said, the, the last 12 months, some of the topics and areas that we've been speaking about. And um, I look forward to the next 12 months and um, we'll be back soon. Indeed. Great, great, great to be with you, Dom, and look forward to speaking to you soon. So all that's left for me to say is thank you very much for listening to this latest edition of Love Grove on Health. A reminder that our podcast can be found on all the major platforms, including Spotify, Amazon, Apple and Google. And that's where you can also subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can also find the recordings on our Skills for Health website and social channels. Until next time, many thanks. Bye.